You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, we both happened to, for different reasons, traveled to Hawaii recently, and uh, you, I think, pre- prepared a fun fact about Hawaii? Yeah, there are several little fun facts that I, I learned. Uh, one is that Hawaii is the only state of the 50 states in the Union and the United States that grows coffee. I thought that was pretty interesting. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Another thing that I learned, too, was about the Hawaiian alphabet and some of the you know the words there and was that they've got all five uh, vowels that we have, A-E-I-O-U, but they have very limited consonants. There are only 12 letters in the entire Hawaiian alphabet, so five vowels and seven consonants, H, K, L, M, N, P, W, which is why so many are things like Waikiki, Honolulu, Oahu. I mean, just over and over, there are these... You know, just wiki 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 wikipedia poopoo mahalo that kind of thing <laughs> right i i'm sure aloha mahalo right so i i found all that pretty fascinating uh you actually had one though about uh well that ties into king hamea right right so um i was I was uh, when I was there. I, I saw you know references to King Kamehameha, uh, and I was as I'm looking at, it, I'm like, that looks like. Okay, so I was never. I, I don't think I've even watched an entire episode of Dragon Ball Z, but I'm enough engrossed in nerd culture to get references, even when I you know don't haven't really watched the show much, if at all. Like yep. I know I'm 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 at danger of losing my nerd card because I don't like Joss Whedon stuff, and I've never gotten into uh, Buffy or Angel or any of that stuff. But how how dare you? I know I know. Um, so, uh, but I know that like one of the big moves or like attacks, and if you know anything about Dragon Ball Z or have heard it before, what you probably know is giant blasts of energy shooting out of people's hands and you know blowing right. stuff up, and right. uh, uh, that that they call that uh, the uh, uh, Kamehameha. Um, yes. So. Uh, I, I looked up and was like, you know, wait a minute, is this the same Kamehameha like from the Japanese cartoon thing? And and yeah, turns out that's that is you know basically uh, they took that word for the uh, anime from this king uh, Kamehameha. Kamehameha, uh, right. and I've always heard it as the Kamehameha, um, which <laughs> is much more fun to say that way. I, I don't know, just for me. Uh, and now it's all mixed up in my head, so who knows how I'll pronounce it next time. Well, when when I was there, we were there for a big uh, celebration and parade. They were having the King Kamehameha Parade. And one of the things in the parade was that they had you know each of these floats going by in different colors, representing these different islands, and that each island in you know each of the major islands there uh, has a specific color. And they had all these different banners, and they were wearing flowers of these certain colors and so on. But throughout the whole thing, I kept kept struggling. And the very first time I saw 
Kamehamehaha. I was doing the same thing. I was mispronouncing it. And my son, who has never been to Hawaii, and he's <laughs> um, you know, 10 years old, and he's like, Dad, it's Kamehameha. And I looked at him and went, well, how the F do you know that? How could you possibly know how to pronounce it? And, I, and he's like, no, it's Kamehameha, I'm sure. I'm like, well, did you hear this somewhere, or have uh, did you sneak away to Hawaii some week that I was unaware of? It's like, no, it's a move in Dragon Ball Z. Like, oh, yeah, okay, it is, isn't it? And then it, it all tied in together for me. It was this moment of, that's kind of funny, because he was the only one of all of us that could say it so quickly and rolled off his tongue, but he had it from a totally different background. So right. I, for, I forced him to learn the history on these different tours. We went to the statue of Kamehameha, and when we heard about you know Kamehameha, uh, sorry, Kamehameha 1 through 5 and the whole history of their lineage and all this other stuff. And So he got all the boring Hawaiian history around it. <laughs> he was only interested in, so what cool moves can you do in, you know, in this anime show? And so I'm looking it up now. It, it roughly translates to giant turtle wave like yep. a, a you know water wave so there you go want to encourage uh, listeners out there to follow us on twitter um so uh, we've got our our super fan that is uh, keeping us up to date on all the twits and tweets and uh so thank you to super fan becca for for keeping us uh, up with that and uh make sure to follow us at double loop pod double loop within pod so also want to mention again uh, our, our uh, involvement with the uh, California Wine Club. Uh, so if you uh, are out there listening to us and you want to have wine delivered to your door, uh, head on over to cawineclub.com. You know, peruse around, see if that's something you're interested in. And uh, if it is, uh, you can get a 15% discount by entering in double loop into the promo code box when you check out. And uh, then the California Wine Club will uh, send some funds over our way uh, to help us out here at the Double Loop Podcast. So, uh, so great way. So, drink wine for the cause. Exactly. What what what, what better way to uh, to help out some of your podcast friends out here? And, so, and uh, I'm going on record right now saying I'm giving you authorization to drink that at work while you listen to us while you're doing your comparisons. <laughs> we'll talk about comparisons, and you can drink the wine. I, I just. Uh, tell your boss, give me a call. I will completely authorize it. Offer only good in France. Uh, <laughs> and Italy. <laughs> and Italy. <laughs> Rest- restrictions may apply. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see how that goes. That's one of those things where, where, where maybe maybe once the trend kind of evolves, you jump on that trend. But uh, don't, don't be the first one to put your toes in that water. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Hash- hashtag be more European. <laughs> There you go. Uh, okay, so let's get back into things with the Michael Peterson case, with the staircase case. Is it the staircase? Yeah, the staircase case. Yeah, the staircase case. Yeah, there you go. And uh, talking, uh, you know, last time we talked a bunch about the details of the crime, kind of what happened, how this documentary shows the evolution of things happening. And this time we're going to get a lot more into the actual forensics uh, of the case. And, uh, you know, Glenn, you had mentioned that you've, you've known and studied and been a part of this case uh, in one way or the other since uh, the very beginning. 
uh, you know, watching on TV and, and then you know, being able to just to see some of the images uh, and some of the evidence that um, you know wasn't really presented in the uh, documentary. So hopefully that can can give us a better picture and kind of clear up, hope, at least for me, um, you know, my overall feelings about this case. Because at this point, I still really am torn between the the evidence presented, the images that you see in this show uh, of how just bloody that crime scene was. And then some of these questions that got raised throughout the trial um, about how the evidence was handled and the conclusions that some of the experts uh, you know, drew uh, from things. As we talk about the evidence here, I believe on the last episode, Eric, you had mentioned this. Um, why did the body have to come from Texas to North Carolina uh, in the exhumation of the, the woman murdered in Germany? Or, sorry, murdered. Uh, found dead at the bottom of the staircase in, in Germany. Um, so why did that go to North Carolina? And obviously even in the episodes, Rudolph doesn't necessarily want that. And Rudolph is concerned about the medical examiner in this case. I think her name was Radish. And uh, so he was a little concerned about them doing this. And again, uh, it looked too much like bias and the prosecutor stacking the deck a little bit. And, you know, that he's concerned about this non-separation of the their conclusions from the case context and what the prosecutor is looking for. Uh, and so they wanted it done in Texas, but the prosecutor fought to get the body to North Carolina. Right. Uh, so one of those initial questions that I had, you know, especially when that episode happens, when that comes up, and then kind of continuing through the rest of the series, is, you know, you see, uh, and we'll talk about uh, this here in a bit on this mm-hmm. episode, that uh, Dr. Henry Lee is hired by the defense uh, to examine the evidence and to testify uh, onto his findings. And initially, in the very first episode, the defense brings in him and, I believe, two other uh, experts to uh, examine uh, the evidence and the scene. And this is, the scene is still not cleaned up. So Month, Right. Months, months after, yes, it's crazy. It's still all there, all the blood, all the stains, everything was left that way so defense could bring in their own experts, which, you know, the family's living in the house, and it's, yeah, it's... Right. Um, so, like, that's why I was watching this, I'm like, wait, they're look, They're not just, like, reviewing crime scene photos, they're look, actually looking at, at the actual bloodstains uh, on the wall, making their own measurements, you know, once that second body is uh, examined by Radish back in North Carolina, what I started thinking is, where's the defense expert medical examiner? Where is, you know, someone coming in to testify like Henry Lee did for uh, blood spatter and all that kind of stuff uh, and the crime scene stuff? Where is the defense expert coming in and maybe poking holes in uh, Radish's work uh, as medical examiner. Right, and, 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 and my recollection was they did have someone, but it's not featured in anything because I, I think that their opinions agreed, and I believe Rudolph went to, again, the usual suspects, you know, the Bodens, the Cyril Wex, and others, the big names that we see in these other cases. So so I went back and looked, and, and sure enough, um, Warner Spitz uh, is, was, was one of the first 
people brought in, and you see him in the first episode. That's it. But yeah. uh, he's basically just not in the rest of the series. Spitz wrote some key books, I and mean, he's a pathologist, but he wrote some key books on gunshot wounds and uh, crime scene investigation. I think if, if you are an IAI-accredited uh, crime scene examiner in one of those uh, aspects, you have probably read his books or know this name. He's fairly famous author when it comes to um, you know, wounds, wound dynamics, etc. So I mean, they have brought in a big guy here. But I don't know that he had anything that disagreed with these findings. The one, the the one thing that comes up, I mean, when it comes to the wounds and the wounds that are observed, and you know, there are, and we'll get to the, talking about the body. Uh, Kathleen Peterson, she has seven lacerations, long lacerations on her skull. Although the skull is not fractured. Um, Yes. You know, that, I know it's a big point that for you that we'll come back to, but she's got these seven lacerations on her head, but she also has dozens and dozens of little bruises and injuries that are often not brought up. They focus on just the seven lacerations, right. but she has all kinds of wounds all over her body that you know, the medical examiner, you know, Radish, you know, says, you know, look, I've seen falls before. I've observed a number of victims of falls these wounds don't fit with my experience of people who had just fallen down the stairs and hit themselves. These are multiple over and over on different angles and the kinds of angles you wouldn't normally find because when someone's falling, you know, they're going to, you know, if you're, if you're hitting your head, you're going to hit at an angle and it's going to be the exterior part. It's going to be where, you know, there's a, a, you know, curvature to the skull. It's going to be inside like a socket or inside a hidden area. There are parts of her body that have wounds on that simply just don't protrude in any way and are much more along the lines of uh, if you're being beaten at different angles and, and you know um you know flat and at angles and that fits more with that uh, those wounds often aren't talked about but right. again in, no, the, in the medical examiner's report when you look at the you know the little bland human drawing and you see all the little marks and crosses and all that where all these wounds are there's many many more than just the seven on the skull right i believe now that i'm thinking about it there there was somebody else who who from the defense that reviewed this the autopsy of of the lady from germany because uh, they were talking about um you know some of the drawings that's just what kind of clicked in my head uh, uh like the the you know the outline drawings of the human body and and where some of those fractures occurred um, uh, yeah. uh, from that se- from the autopsy of the second lady. So let's let's kind of talk about some of this. You know, what what's found? So first off, like we kind of talked about last time, there is a lot of blood, and by a lot of blood, that's one thing that's kind of interesting. In, in I guess especially with with this airing on Netflix and and not really being a documentary for like you know prime time American audiences. That there's just like here's the body and here's all the cuts and here's all the blood and it's not all none of it's like blurred out or anything it's just and you see the bottom of the staircase and yeah holy crap that's a lot of blood like like a lot of blood you know i i did crime scenes and bloodstain pattern analysis for some years and there's a lot of blood in areas you know projected onto walls and some stains on ceilings and various areas that are fairly high that would be I and mean, you'd have to have a body that's bleeding profusely flailing around and i'm not saying that's not out of the realm of possibility but 
boy, that's a lot of blood in, in areas that you wouldn't normally see that much blood being projected with some force from anything I've seen related to a fall or accidental. I mean, it it really is projected in lots of different spots. So let me t- ask you this, because one of the things that they bring up over and over again is that there's no cast-off. So cast-off would be... So there's no, there's no obvious cast off. There's no linear okay. cast off in a in a way of okay. Here are ten dot ten stains in a row in a linear form, but yet we have a stain here, a stain there, and when you have these separate stains, you can't necessarily account for the mechanism that put them there. On the other hand, there there are stains up towards the ceiling and the arch and a few other areas, and even if you can't uh, put together a pattern of here is clear cast off. Right. There are stains fairly high up on surfaces. Okay. That, that's and that's one thing that that they they really emphasized in the show was that there was no cast off and basically you know, maybe that you see a drop or something up here but there's nothing really high up. Ah. Uh, 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 for non BPA people this is the diff- this is like um finger no fingerprints at all versus no fingerprints of value. Got it. That makes yep, a lot more makes sense. sense. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. So um, not enough to establish a pattern of cast off, but still stains that if it was just to fall on the ground, how did that stain get up eight feet in the air? Okay. So we mentioned briefly before, but um, like you had said, uh, no broken skull, uh, no brain damage. And uh, they make a big deal about this. And uh, they even go to, to the, uh, the extent of the uh, defense attorney, goes to the extent of reviewing every you know, beating mm-hmm. death over the past 10, 15 years that had occurred in North Carolina. And yep. they had found not a single instance where someone was beaten over the head to death Yep. where there wasn't at least a broken skull or and or brain damage. Yep. And Kathleen Peterson had neither. Uh, she just had these these seven large lacerations. And good Lord, I mean, these are some yeah. pretty serious uh, you know, uh, damage to the scalp um, um, you know, on her head. It's, uh, you can see really clearly, especially when they show the pictures, uh, during the autopsy of, uh, you know, after they've uh, shaved off all her hair. Yep. Uh, first of all, I love that they did that. That was brilliant defense. And, man, that was great. So well done. And and what a great strategy to look at all these other cases. Don't rely on my training experience of the medical examiner. Go into the cases, look at the data, and find out what all these other ones. So from a defense perspective, brilliant now, there's a little thing. I don't know if it ever comes out in any of the documentaries, but maybe you, you let me know if it, if it did. The medical examiner, Radish, in this case, I believe she initially concluded, and I'm going to mix this up. I'm not sure which one it is, but I think she initially concluded that the cause of death was exsanguination, bleeding to death, that she bled to death, but then later changed the opinion to blunt force trauma. And so even though if there was enough bleeding out from these wounds because she was unconscious and bleeding out and lost consciousness, that makes sense as a cause of death. But when they go to blunt force trauma, now they're putting this in this other category, which, of course, fits the prosecution's model of right. of real easy, she was beaten to death. But also, if you look at it from a different perspective, well, she was beaten enough to cause enough bleeding 
to bleed out the death, okay, well then then that opens up a whole other series of potential causes of you know, cases they should have looked at from the defense perspective, not just blunt force trauma death. Make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it does make sense. If that if someone was beaten over the head, but they bled to death instead of yes, um, died beating, from blunt force trauma. From brain then, swelling and, and all right. that, right. right. Then that could account for, uh, then there could have been other cases where someone was hit over the head multiple times uh, yes. and then died from that without yes. having the broken skull or the brain if, damage. If they had looked at some traffic accidents where maybe there wasn't blunt force trauma, but enough loss of blood, you know, it opens up things a little bit differently. But she had changed her opinion. And this is actually a little controversial. I don't remember it being in the documentary because it looked like her boss, a more senior uh, medical examiner, may have convinced her during a technical review to basically have a different opinion. And this is where, again, I think Rudolph's suspicion of this bias, medical examiners and trying to fit this you know, look, we know we know as a community that they've had some issues as well, and there are right. some cases where they, you know, the shaken baby and some other things where medical examiners have been accused of being essentially in collusion with prosecution, and right. this case is one of those as well where this was brought up. So I just I just want to bring out that very subtle nuanced point that the original cause of death was actually bleeding to death i do remember that i think you're right that it was maybe from some of the later uh episodes or, uh where where it comes out um uh, it, that, that so it does change. come out at some point in the i believe so okay. that, cause that does sound familiar okay. um a couple a couple things again before we really dive in um uh to, to you know more more specifics i want to cover a couple other things real quick that 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 kind of had me keep going back and forth so um, so some of the stuff with with the, the family. So with this documentary starting so soon after the uh, the death occurred, uh, and and so early in the um, in the process of the investigation, there's actually an interview that you see, I believe it is in the first episode, with the victim's daughter. So now this is Caitlin. Once you kind of learn the cast of characters here. The, the daughter of Kathleen Peterson, uh, who you know comes into this blended family from her. So initially, you see this interview with her where she, you know, really doubts that mm-hmm. Michael Peterson could have done this. But that's the only interview where you'll hear her say that. Basically, the only interview that you know she gives for the for the the program, because uh, shortly after that. Uh, she becomes convinced that Michael Peterson did kill her mom, yep. and she and her aunts, Kathleen Peterson's sisters, you know, become in the documentary basically the the villains of the show in pushing the prosecution uh, to pursue this conviction uh, over time. It's really interesting. The uh, sisters, so the victim, Kathleen Peterson, her sisters, the revelation of uh, Michael Peterson's homosexuality that flips the switch in them, where they go from not really being sure, trying to figure out what happened to their sister, to Michael Peterson's the one that did it, and they even in the what they show again in the documentary is that uh, a lot of that occurs when that news comes out. Again, watching this show, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm thinking, 
what did you see? Did you see any violence? And they can, you know, when asked specifically if they'd seen any violence between Michael Peterson and his wife Kathleen, they don't really, they don't describe any violence that they'd previously seen. They say that no marriage could work like this. This is terrible. This is wrong. This is gross. And Michael Peterson, I think what they say is he, he wasn't the person that he portrayed himself to be. So then it's like, well, was he violent with her? Well, he wasn't the person he portrayed himself to be. And so that, that's I'm like, well, okay, there's no, there's not this history of kind of the people that would know and would say something. With uh, Caitlin, the daughter, her mind seems to be changed when she sees the autopsy photos, when she sees how, um, you know, how mm-hmm. large, yep. how the damage done, you know, to those seven lacerations, that really changes her mind into... Um, you know, thinking that uh, Michael Peterson killed her mom. Yep. She doesn't bring up any instances of violence, and she was living there. Yeah. Which, again, had me really back and forth while watching this whole program as to, you know, uh, know, someone just all of a sudden, you know, losing it and beating his wife to death. Granted, with this motive, but uh, it, it seems from kind of what I've, you know, what you see watching the show that it came out of nowhere. I, I, I agree with you 100% on that. I have worked scenes where I have seen the switch flip. I have worked those scenes where wow. uh, this guy seemed all nice and everything. He, he's being berated by his wife. There's this or there's something going on. He's stressed out, walks into the room, grabs a baseball bat, and just beats his wife to death and then just calmly calls the police and says, I, I did something bad. I mean, I've, I've worked those cases where... No history of violence. Switch gets flipped, murders, and then just back to normal. It's they're so weird. I I I can't fathom what is going on. But it is almost like in a moment, there's this evil thing that takes this person over, makes them do something right. terrible, and then just as if it never happened. And then in their mind, on. it never did. It, it wasn't me. It was. I, I don't I don't know where that person came from. It wasn't me. It, it was it's like a mini case of possession. Back to the Exorcist, right. and yeah, I, I I don't know where that came from. I don't know what happened. I don't I don't. Okay. I, I, I've seen I have seen that. I I see your point, and I understand how when the daughter sees this evidence, she she just can't fathom this idea that this was a simple fall. And throughout right. throughout the entire. I, I think it's in the documentary. It comes up a couple of times, especially with the new prosecutor later is arguing, keeps coming back to common sense or common sense. Look, I've got all the original court TV, in, you know, all that stuff and the interviews and Nancy Grace was the correspondent yeah. on this case. And, yeah. then, and, and she just kept saying, and what are what are those jurors going to think? This is just common <laughs> sense. Just common sense. Is this a fall? I've never seen a fall like this. And she just keeps coming back to well, common sense. Does this fit with anything we know about a kind of fall down the stairs? And it doesn't until Henry Lee comes in and tries to explain it. Although I would frame it as um, make the evidence fit a new scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and we've already discussed, you know, Henry Lee from our uh, O.J. Simpson, you know, episodes, uh, you know, coming in, doing what he was hired to do there. Uh, and I, I don't know, the, the when I saw Henry Lee being the one that they went with, did my personal bias against Henry Lee, that really <laughs> shot holes in, in what 
uh, I was willing to believe from the defense now. Oh, interesting. So, so it, it uh, affected the credibility of an alternative explanation for you. That and I okay. So maybe they went with him because you know he's so well known. He's he was like the biggest name. But yes, when the first episode has these three people there, you know, one of which obviously recognized right away as Henry Lee. Two others that um, that I would have to look up because the name didn't you know didn't register immediately, and then of those three, Henry Lee's the one that sticks around and then would testify. And they even make mention of you know the others in their reports. They can only say this; they won't say this. Yes. But Henry Lee will go through and say all these you know more yes. stuff that for me really affected the credibility of oh, okay you you could only get henry lee to support your case uh no one else would go there looking at the evidence and support your version of what happened on the staircase yeah all right so now now is a good time to start getting into some of the bloodstain pattern evidence um so let me let me approach it this way there is the original guy who shows up to do this because this was a durham pd case right in, Dur- in Durham, North Carolina, but Durham PD realizes very quickly, mm, okay, we, we need we need the state to come in. So they contact the state lab, which is SBI, uh, you know, the Bureau of Investigation, State Bureau of Investigation, State Crime yeah. Lab, right, in North Carolina, and they send, I think, a couple of guys. But my recollection is that Le- well, the main guy being Dwayne Deaver. Yes. Is the bloodstain pattern expert that goes out and does this? And in fact, in my classes, most of our assignment was focused on Deaver's testimony. Again, this is all before before I knew any of this coming out and all the controversy around. Like we had always focused on his testimony. He's the main focus of the uh, the forensic files episode. In part two, of course, it's the whole reason for the case being overturned. Yeah. Um, all right, so he does the initial work. The, the initial bloodstain pattern, BPA, bloodstain pattern analysis work. So he does the BPA stuff. Then Henry Lee comes in and does his stuff and comes up with the alternative theory that, no, no, uh, these patterns could have been created from a fall and offers an, another mechanism for the production of these patterns. Deaver's stuff is very clear. Uh, she was beat to death and that there was a object you know a blunt object long object some kind of object she was beaten with that is causing these minimum three hits because he has three impact sites meaning that they project the three different areas of space plus an initial blow that causes the blood flow so minimum four strikes and she's got seven lacerations on her head you know you can hit someone multiple times in the same spot and it's just going to look like a larger impact site but you can't separate out multiple blows. So minimum, he's, he's sure there's four blows right. because he's got three different impact sites. Okay. And here's a big thing that is not emphasized very much in part one, comes up slightly in part two. And I'm gonna, this is where I'm going to say my first thing that was completely convincing to me. Those project in space, not on the wall. Not over the stair risers, not on the edge of the stair riser. They projected into space. As I recall that scene, it's a ve- at the bottom of the, the stairwell, it's something like three by three or maybe four by four area at the bottom of the staircase. And they projected to a space in the middle of space as if the body is laying on the ground or trying to get up several inches off the ground, and those stains are projecting to the middle of space. Now, as I recall, one is near the wall, 
And I and I thought another one is closer to the middle, and then there's one like dead in the middle of the the, the center, halfway between the wall and the stairs. I have to go back and look at the original evidence, but three distinct patterns because they have to be separated enough. Otherwise, you have to call them one. So they have to actually have at least a foot or so between each one to call them a distinct separate impact site or origin. Right. Um, and as I recall, there's one in the middle, and there's no object. There's no wall. There's no stair. There's nothing near it. The only way it could be there is if her head is being struck in the middle of the stairwell. This, is, to me, is like the key bit of convincing evidence. Now, uh, a couple things with that. So, one part sure. of the defense explanation is that she fell down the stairs. Uh, she started bleeding, uh, you know, badly. Yes. Um, tried to, was knocked unconscious for a while, bled for a while. Yep. Tried to get up. Yep. Uh, and fell down again. And uh, at yep. some point, possibly even was... Um, hit the wall. Well, hit the wall, but also was uh, was spewing blood from her mouth, was coughing up blood, or blood was getting was running down her head, you know, into her mouth, and, and it was, you know, then she was, you know, projecting it from her mouth. Um, yeah. It, it, it still doesn't fit, doesn't fit. because okay. you would end up with either impact sites by the stairs where she's falling back down. Right. So they should should be impact sites right at the edge of a stair riser, you know, right where it goes up and then goes right. horizontal. So on the edge where it hits, there should be boom, there should be a blood impact there. If she has blood on that part of her skull already. If it doesn't, it's not going to give an impact site. It's got to have blood there already. Right. Or if she hits the wall, then there should be one near to the wall, which, as I recall, there was at least one near the wall. Right, yes. But there's at least one, as I recall. And again, I'm going back 15 years to looking at the original photos in the crime scenes that has never shown, ever shown in the documentary. There is an impact site in the middle of the stairwell, the bottom of the stairwell, nothing near it. Up above the ground. So it's not even like her head hitting the ground. This is up in space. As if, frankly, you have a body that's trying to get up on all fours or raising a head up and then getting hit. Right there. Boom. You've got this impact site in space. It's the only way you can have that. There's no other mechanism. Other, and Even if you could explain some of the other right. ones as close to the wall... wall I, you can't account for that one. So in the in the second part, when when they go through and uh, you know after he's convicted, there's a um, you know there's uh, grounds for a, uh, a retrial, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because mm-hmm. um, of of Dwayne Deaver and a lot of the problems that he had. So he was so right. Like let's let, just do let that. me let me finish before. Yeah, okay. Because Deaver did the initial work. Right. We'll get to this eventually, but his approach and conclusions comes under fire. And so then we go, well, we can – all his stuff is now suspicious. Then Henry Lee comes in and does his work. Here's what never comes out in any of the video. There's – in the second part – actually, it comes out once in the first part. There is one comment that Rudolph makes – that says something along the lines of, well, prosecution has another expert waiting in the wings. We'll see if they call him or them or not. That's the only thing that's ever referenced to it. In the second part, they actually say it. The um, When the new DA is handling this right. case, 
and we'll get to her. <laughs> she was woefully unprepared, <laughs> such that the family said, uh, we don't want her handling right. this case. We would rather the AG's office handle this. She doesn't know what she's doing. She is unprepared. We don't want this grave matter in her hands. And, uh, yeah, they were kind of right. She was very unprepared. Uh, but she says it. She actually says the name. She says Epstein and Labor. Actually, I think she's Labor and Epstein. Labor and Epstein yes. did the work, and they had these conclusions. It's the only time it's ever referenced because prosecution had two experts looking at this. They had Deaver. Then Lee came in, and then another group, a pair, a duo, Labor and Epstein, Bart Epstein, Terry Labor, my mentors in BPA, this is how I know the case, they came in after and did their own assessment of everything. So whatever we know about Deaver, whatever we can say about his incompetence or all these other things, that is not the same about Epstein and Labor. And my huge question I have lingering is, why did we never hear from them? Why did they never testify? Why did prosecution not bring them on? Was this why the they wanted to settle later? Were they going to testify? And so I'm going to tease our listeners with this. I've reached out to my very good friends, Epstein and Labor, and I'm talking to Bart right now about coming on the show and presenting his evidence so that our listeners will have access to information not found anywhere, and they can hear from someone who was at the scene who did a completely different examination and has nothing to do with Devers. And to me, this will sell everyone listening to any of these episodes going, oh, yeah, that's why the jury convicted him. Got it, got it. So, well, okay, uh, a little preview there of what's coming up, and and this, I'm excited about this. Fingers crossed I, that I'll, that Bart will agree right. to this. And he, Bart, you know, he's not a limelight guy. Uh, you know, I, I got to make sure that he understands. We just want to focus on the evidence. People need to hear this evidence because I think, again, like like you're saying, when you watch these documentaries, you're back and forth, you're back and 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 if. You take the, mm, I'm really suspicious of law enforcement, then you come out of this going, oh, this guy got railroaded. <laughs> right. This guy was innocently convicted. This is a BS case. It was all on lies and all this. But I want to go back to the evidence because the evidence, again, I haven't seen it in 15 years. But when I saw it then in 2003 or 2002, I went, oh, this is open shut. This is clear cut. There is no ambiguity here. And, and 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 Henry Lee's explanation does not answer all these other things. That's that's my recollection of fifteen years ago. And watching the second half now, when they start going through the the retrial or or you know challenging the initial conviction, uh, which which gets Peterson you know re- released on bail and stuff. Yeah, and, and focus specifically on the bloodstain pattern analysis and looking at the validity of the of the methodology and the conclusions uh, and the uh, reliability and you know honesty of the expert that that did all this work, right? Um, and questioning his his ethics and his practices. You had mentioned the the bloodstain pattern, you know, come you know the uh, being uh, connected back to a point in space. Yes. They brought in an expert, Tom Bevel? Tom Bevel, yes. I believe he's out of Colorado. He often works, just like Epstein and Labor work together as a partnership, uh, it's often Gardner, or Bevel and Gardner. Gardner, right. Are the, are the two bloodstain pattern analysts who, you know. And I, I see them, um, you know, often at conferences, like they'll their company, uh, Bevel and Gardner, will have a booth there at, like, the IEI conferences and stuff. Yes. Uh, you know, he goes on the stand 
uh, for the defense yes. saying that the Deaver's conclusions that this blood spatter analysis you know can be traced back to a point in space meaning yes. she was hit with an object while she was you know not touching a wall or the ground or the staircase she yeah. was a, away from all those things when she was hit and the blood went out from there yes that you can't trace back a bloodstain pattern to a point in space. Yes, okay. So I watched that part very carefully. They had Bevel testify, and then they also had Paulette Sutton testify. Uh, she was kind of an older lady, uh, Southern. She lives in North Carolina. She's also a bloodstain pattern. They had both these guys testify to uh, these conclusions that the Deavers came up with and, you know, the validity of the process. Side note, right. uh, you probably won't recall this, but remember when I went to Taiwan? And I told yeah. you that I had I you know I went to dinner with Henry Lee and I had a chance to watch him do karaoke with his wife and it was very whoa, whoa, whoa. sweet and endearing. No, no, I, I, you have to go back to an episode. I, I think it was okay. maybe the OJ episode or some or maybe when I got back from Taiwan. But I talked about Henry Lee is a very sweet guy. He's revered in Taiwan. He's a hero there, and you know, people really look up to him. And when we all went to dinner at this big commissioner's banquet. Uh, all the Taiwanese and Henry Lee included did karaoke and I had this very endearing moment of watching Henry Lee sing to his wife who recently passed away a couple of years ago um, and it was very very sweet I've got it on video I actually have video of this <laughs> on my phone all right <laughs> what I uh, what I mentioned just offhandedly was I sat next when I was at dinner I sat next to this other expert in you know crime scene expert you know bloodstain pattern expert it was actually this Paulette Sutton who's in the video so when I saw her testify in the stand. I went, oh, hey, there's Paulette. That's my dinner partner because we were this is our first time in Taiwan and we were trying to figure out, well, what food are we going to try? And we would <laughs> wait for the other person to try it and go, well, what did you think? Ah, it was a little chewy. And so, anyway, I sat right next to her and we actually talked about the Peterson case, which was amazing because when I found out she was from Raleigh Durham and went, oh, do you remember the Peterson case? Because again, I've been a fan of this case for years following it. So we actually talked about it then, which is crazy because that was, you know, five, six years ago. All right, back to the stand and your question. Can you determine a point of origin in space? And here's where the nuance comes out. I have never seen Deaver's actual report. It, maybe it's online now and available. But it would not surprise me if he said it was six inches off of the ground, um, you know, 18 inches east of the west wall, and basically puts it in space, at, you, know, you know, X inches this way, Y inches that way, right? And right. says, here's where the point of impact is. Can you specifically say exactly where a point of impact is? No. Because when a bloodstain pattern analyst talks about you know um, you know the origin of blood and the point of impact, these two things often go hand in hand, but are not the same thing. But when they talk about it, they'll talk about often a volleyball-sized shape for the point of impact. So where your calculations say, okay, it's right here, you basically then imagine a volleyball, and that's like the center of it, plus or minus six inches one way or the other. Now. 
when I came into BPA, the first thing I said is, well, we're making all these measurements. Why don't we do uncertainty and measurement? Why don't we, you know, look at a distribution of these, do a t-test, come up with right. this, and then come up with a confidence interval. And people in BPA looked at me like I was an insane freak. And I just went, well, this, <laughs> this is common sense. And then, you know, five years later, a software was coming out and Craig Moore from Canada, I saw him present at the IAI. He's like, yeah, we got this technology. You, pl- you plug in 12 stains. The more stains you plug in, the, the smaller the uncertainty, the, you know, and it can calculate all this uncertainty in your measurements. So you can say it's 12 inches plus or minus three and a half inches off of the surface because it should always be some uncertainty because gravity affects these stains and slows them down and changes their angle before before they hit the wall sometimes well and also if you like if you hit somebody over the head with uh, say a bat you yes. know it, it's not impacting at any point it's, it's impacting not impacting an a, area exactly and, and in fact actually where the bat's hitting might not be where the blood is that's why the origin and the point right. of impact can be slightly offset a little bit if the blood is at the front of the skull but you're hitting in the middle of the skull but because it's a flat object your point of impact might truly be the center of the skull, but the blood is projecting from the front of the skull because it's pulled up there. And so you, you may also have blood on the back of the skull, yes, and then you have correct. have it coming off from both sides of the skull yes. from the same impact again, which gives you that volleyball size, you know, shape. Which which is what it made sense in that episode when he's talking about you can't do a point; it's got to be about this big. And I was like, well, that totally makes sense. Yes. Why would Deaver testify that it was a point? So what what's a little sad is that community has just. Instead of going embracing statistics and using you know uncertainty and measurement, they've just said, well, we just say there's volleyball size. But you, they could actually be better. They could be more scientific. And in more recent years, they've gone that direction. But right. 10 years ago, it was, well, no, we just say it's a volleyball size and we're done. Well, yeah, that's cheating the uncertainty because if you only have three stains, your uncertainty may be higher. If you have... 40 stains you can actually be a little more precise so especially 40 stains coming from different surfaces the uncertainty really changes if it's one wall versus multiple walls that are all triangulating back so there's some nuance in here that lay people won't quite get but if Devers ever said in his testimony, I never heard this anywhere, that he was adamant it had to be a single like no it's exactly 6 inches and 12 inches I'd be shocked if he said that because knowing the people that trained him, they would never say that. So what I wonder is years later, people looking at that were focused on his number, which wasn't clear enough, saying, however, there's uncertainty here. It's more of a volleyball. This is just an estimate of you know point of impact and all this. If maybe Maybe some of that was missing. But I don't. I would be shocked if Devers actually said anywhere in testimony, which I never heard and saw at least ninety percent of his testimony. He never said it's exactly this point in space. So to me, this is a little bit of post. Let's go back, demonize, and show he didn't know what he was doing, and right. and, and just keep focusing on how he used terrible methodology, didn't know what he was doing, but that's not my recollection of what was presented at the time was. In fact, it was actually par for the course for BPA back then. But if Bevel is asked specifically, hey, if this guy says a point in space, is that is that appropriate? Well, no, it's not. And it's not appropriate back then. It's not appropriate today, right? No, it's not. 
Got but it. notice how Bevel is never asked, and did you examine the scene and the evidence, and did you have a different opinion about the, the origin of the... He's never True. asked any of those questions. He's only asked, do you disagree that you can say a point in space? Well, yes. I disagree. Everyone should disagree with that. Well, and then, so what, what I remember from what I remember now of that episode, they are talking about um, a point of impact that, you know, uh, that Devers mentions that's like two or three inches away from a wall. Yes. So then they say, well, then it could have been the wall that caused it because that that's within that volleyball-shaped space, you yes. know, of, 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 you know, three inches away from the wall. Yes. So, again, back to my issue that I've had with them forever was, see, guys, if you had done uncertainty of measurement, <laughs> you could actually calculate the probability that it could have originated from the wall based on this measurement in space. You could come up with a distribution based on your stains, and then the likelihood that it could have come off the wall could have been computed. Because if it's, let's say, let's say it is, um, let's say, six to eight inches off the wall, or I think it was two to three inches off the wall, right? Two to three, yeah. Yeah. Then you really can't exclude that okay, well, this could have been a hit to the wall and then it could have projected off of the head. That can't be excluded as a possibility. But that's one of the, the one of the impact sites. What about the other two? Notice they're not mentioned in the documentary. Right. That's what I was going to say. So that you're saying that there's another one further from the wall that is still, not a point, but an area in space. Right. Maybe, maybe a foot off. I think the second one, but again, look, I'm I'm going off my memory of looking at something for about 15 minutes, 15 years ago. <laughs> but I was so convinced when I saw it because it was just so obvious to me. Because it's right. the third one. The third one I recall is feet off the wall, and feet away from the stairs. It's in right. the middle, nowhere near anything. Even if you put the uncertainty of the volleyball, there's no way it came from anything else other than her head in the middle of space. Which had to have been impacting something and... Something, yes. Okay, so... And, and, that, and that doesn't mean Peterson killed her. No. But someone did, in my view. Or, or something. something. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that's, that later. Well, that's something else, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Devers and his his methods of, of uh, recreating. So in the documentary... They they focus a lot of time, and the defense focuses a lot of time on how Devers, in trying to recreate these stains, they actually rebuild an entire staircase that matches, and they're trying to recreate the uh, the stains that are found there. They 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 spend a lot of time in how he had to go through all these scenarios. He had to practice, and he had to try and retry different ways to create this uh this stain so stain um, patterns the same pattern right right oh and let, let, let's let's mention one other thing because there were two pieces of critical evidence for me um actually three like three three quick things out the first was the this impact site in space the second was that he had stains going up into the crotch of his shorts yes. now the video only talks about one stain I think, or maybe two, but I seem to recall several stains going up into the crotch, but I could be misremembering, but I remember it as several impact stains traveling upwards, and that's important, traveling upwards to, into his crotch area. That's important. And then the, the third thing is that there is clear evidence of cleanup. Like, there are stains that have been wiped on the wall. I mean, like, they have been wiped, and they are diluted, where 
someone got a wet rag, tried to wipe it up, and you can see this in the video. Like you can clearly see it in, in the the documentary when they keep showing the wall. There's right. like all this blurry red area. That's because it's all been wiped in some parts. Right. And the, the the shorts had all these diluted stains on it, too. Like, the shorts have been attempted to have been washed, and so there's a big, huge blood stain that's... It, it looks classic washing when you try to wash out blood, but it diffuses throughout the, the fabric. And so he's got this huge blood smear on the shorts. So it looked like an attempt to clean up the shorts and the wall, which... Uh, okay. Um, how'd that happen? Right. So, I mean, these are three important things to me that are critical evidence in this. So, now let's go back to these different scenarios and Medivh stuff. Right. So, so when I was watching the Deaver stuff, they made this big deal about how he was, you know, trying to make it fit. Like, he had to go through all these different things, stand in the wrong place, you know, and, and like, straddle things in order to... And you know, hit hard enough to draw blood, but not hard enough to break the skull, and and eventually, you know, gets it, gets the evidence he's looking for, and then that's kind of the that's made a big deal of is that's not scientific. You don't try until you get the evidence that you're looking for. Yeah. And again, my I'm not I'm not I don't have any training in blood stain pattern. Um, I'm, you know, just just in latents um, or just what I've read. You know, I I, I don't have that expertise. But in, in my way of thinking, it would make sense to try different things, and then once the thing that yep. worked, that like that recreated the stain, it's not like you're trying to make it fit, you're just trying to keep doing things until, oh, this is this created the thing that, I, that I'm actually already seeing, so yep. this must be similar to the action that caused this uh, pattern. Am, am I... No, uh, okay, Eric, you... How close am I on 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 how this uh, this discipline actually works? A hundred percent, and this is where I agree with documentary. I agree with Rudolph. I agree with everyone who looked at that and went. It looked like Debers was just trying to prove the prosecution's theory. Yes, it certainly did, and he probably was. And here's a, a general statement I'm going to say. This is a, actually problematic for me in a lot of forensic science. This is rampant throughout forensic science. We'll get into this in another episode. I'm, I'm going to talk about a case maybe in a few weeks that I just worked where. I saw some of the best work I've ever seen because what forensic scientists should be doing, a true forensic scientist, not a lab technician, not someone who's just given a case and just working this and just trying to get a result to the prosecution and just moving on to the next one, a critical thinking forensic scientist should look at the various hypotheses and test the hypothesis proposed and alternative hypotheses and that's what's bothering you is that the alternative hypothesis was not explored they had one that was basically from this this beating and they did everything they could to make the evidence kind of recreate and go well there it is but they didn't explore the alternative hypotheses that they could have if they could have gone back and done the beating scenario this the or sorry the um, the, falling. The, the falling the stairwell uh the wall they could have explored those and showed that it wouldn't have created those patterns. That's what a forensic scientist should do. Devers, and I don't blame him. I blame the professions in general and how forensic scientists have been taught that they have not been taught, like like I think good forensic scientists, to really think globally and look at alternative explanations. They just are asked to do a single test, they give the results, and they don't really think about the broader picture because... And what I'll tease as a topic for another time is what 
Pierre Margot so brilliantly said so long ago in 2007, the first great bias in forensic science is the adversarial system. That when you are working for an adversary like a prosecutor defense, you're only looking at it from their perspective trying to answer their question, not from the scientific perspective. And so I agree. His methodology is biased, is one-sided, is prosecutorially based. And he did not explore the other scenarios and questions and didn't take it from a scientific standpoint. But I don't know. It's just Deavers. I'd say that right. you could find that in every state, in every lab. You could find that biased approach. Well, and and it, uh, I, I didn't see it as necessarily a problem. Uh, I guess what I was trying to get at was not that you know he had this bias, which you're saying you know it was present, but that just because he was trying to recreate the pattern that was observed at the crime scene doesn't mean that he was trying to fit a scenario. He, you know, as long as you're like, what does it have to take to get to here? And then you, once you, once you recreate the, the pattern, then you can see, okay, then you go back and look, look at the video. What was I doing at that time to sure. recreate this pattern? That seems fine to me. Is that actually fine in BPA uh, work? Very debated because you know they got uh, Paulette Sutton and Bebel talking about no no these were these were ridiculous experiments. They were ridiculous in that Deaver was deliberately trying to you to get exactly what was seen at the scene, which from a scientific standpoint is well that's actually he found evidence that it could have happened that way. Right. What is missing from the likelihood ratio perspective <laughs> is the second could hypothesis. Another way or. or it could happen, but less likely to have happened this. So if you look at the right. – what is the probability to observe the evidence under she was beaten like this versus what is the probability to observe this evidence if she had fallen like this? That's what's missing is that is this basic forensic science principle of the probability to observe this evidence that we had at the scene under these conditions and scenarios. That's not present in his work, but I would say that's actually lacking in many, many agencies and forensic scientists' work because because they're not taught those basic fundamentals of forensic science. Right. Um, okay, so you, so you saw the pants... Uh, signs that they were try they were um, cleaned um, cleaned up and stuff. That doesn't come out much in the video, as I recall. Right? It doesn't come out in the documentary about the cleanup not of until, the until like the cleanup, like almost not at all. Yeah, um, it, it's 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 definitely in the uh, not the transcript the uh, the testimony that I watched way back then. Right, and it might have even brought up in the forensic files episode. Uh, on that track of cleanup. In the original series, they talk about, uh, they look at pictures, right? So the uh, defense shows pictures of of the same stains taken of different glitch. times. The glitch. Well, there's the glitch, which was like, what, yes. what do you mean glitch? That's not a glitch. <laughs> uh, it's office, office space. We fixed the glitch. The, then there's other stains where um, that uh, Devers points to saying, hey, look, here's signs of cleanup. Uh-huh. But there's another picture of that same stain without the sign of cleanup, without that like circle, uh, yes. halo kind of look. It's it's called the skeletonized stain. There you go. That's that's the term. You know what? What are your thoughts on on that? First, the 
the skeletonized, clean-up-looking things, but there's there's images from yeah. the crime scene yeah, with, yeah. without that. Now, my thought was, okay, maybe if I mean if if they're just if that's like if if that's like the entire scene looks like that and you know different pictures, maybe that's one thing. But you know, then again, you take some pictures with the body there, you move the body out. Yes. Yeah, that's you know, there's, exactly. You, it takes you know it takes effort to move for the medical examiners uh you know to move the body out and you know in a messy crime scene yeah you your butt can hit up against the back of the wall and and wipe a stain a little bit so you know is this pervasive or is this uh, or is there additional evidence of the cleanup in those initial photos as well yeah great great question um i i will say I, I ultimately don't know. I have a suspicion just like you is that there's only one kind of example of this. And that if it was truly a cleanup and alteration, there would be many, many more examples. I actually think it's a fairly innocent explanation that having worked these scenes, sometimes when you have to go back or you're doing additional work, the blood is drying now. And as you put a loop down or a string down or tape down, because you've got to actually like tape these pieces of string to the wall and then they come off and project. And if you pull the tape off at some point, is it possible you could brush a flaking stain? I, I, I've seen this. I've seen right. these kinds of things because you do have the skeletonized outer shell of the stain, but then as it dries, it can flake, and you're left with that little ring, but then the blood has flaked and fallen off. And there's all little things like that can happen as you're taking photos during the scene. If there were so many examples of this, I would have gone, mm, that looks a little bad. I, I I think that this is just Rudolph being very, very careful in his analysis and pointing out little differences, picking up on little things that he's able to actually make a huge amount of hay with later when they actually find that there really was some real problems with Deaver's work later in right. in time. So that that didn't stand out to me as a deal breaker. That actually fit with real life and what happens at scenes as you're taking photos in the very beginning versus photos at the end. And the glitch? <laughs> yeah, I, I'll never figure that one out. That's a little embarrassing. It's weird. I don't know. I really I don't get that. It's One photo looks this way. The other photo looks this way. The crime scene guy's like, I don't know. I have no idea why it looks like that way. I mean, usually when you get a glitch like that, it's like dead pixels, um, mm-hmm. you know, in in a, in a camera. Um, but again, again, this is going back to '01. I can't imagine these were digital cameras back then. That's <laughs> I don't know. You know. Okay, okay. The shirt, no blood spatter on his shirt. <sighs> I am not. I don't know that. I don't know. Like I have often wondered. There's, there seemed to be evidence missing from this scene. And, for example, the murder weapon. Um, and could there be a shirt missing? And then if he got rid of the shirt, then why not get rid of the shorts? Right. There are some things that just don't make sense from... Which is why I don't think this was premeditated. I actually do think... I, I really believe the, the theory of she found this, confronted him. They actually had been drinking... And I, I don't think this was premeditated. I really don't. Well, they they found her blood alcohol level to be 0.07 uh, yeah. at, you know, at the medical examiner's office. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they had been drinking. 
I, I, I don't know, but there are definitely some things missing from the scene, and there is a gap in time before the call is made. I mean, I have to believe this because all the evidence about when she actually died, the uh, the cleanup, and all these other things, time for the son to get there and then have a talk, and all this kind of stuff before the EMS arrives. Man, there's certainly time to dish stuff. And so was there another shirt that could have been, maybe, you know? Did he have time to, like, clean up his face? Maybe. But then again, why keep the shorts that are, you know, he tries to clean? Or maybe, and here's here's the thing, there's no obvious blood stains on the shorts until you look into the crotch area. Right. And so maybe he thought he had cleaned his shorts sufficiently. True. And then didn't see the stains that are up in the groin area, and didn't because they're small and on the inside, and maybe didn't you know again, you know not everyone had a lot of great knowledge of forensic science back in two thousand one. You know we you know didn't really have we have new detectives and forensic files, so these are new things, and people aren't as savvy back then. So I don't know, I, I don't get that one. Okay, but I mean we know there is evidence missing, like the murder weapon. Right. Okay. Well, um, I think we, you know we kind of covered a bunch on uh, on the evidence this time, and you know just to kind of recap it, uh, your your three big things here were the uh, the the impact in space, meaning there's at least one area, not point, of uh, origin of blood spatter right. that occurred away from the walls and the floor and the steps and the the risers. Uh, that had to have been uh, an impact with her head to some object that caused blood to go flying from there. Uh, and uh, so that's the first one. Well uh, said. Second big point being... Yep. Uh, signs of cleanup, right? Um, signs of cleanup. Time for clotting of blood and all the kinds of things that we know at least an hour maybe two from when this would have happened to get to allow drying of blood clotting of blood to occur when there's a large pool of blood because what happens in a large pool of blood is the blood leaks out it's all there but then the a clot starts right the clot will f- go into the center of of it and you're left with a serum ring like on the outside because the blood clots in the center and you're left with all the water liquid clear water on the outside so that clotting is what you see in large pools that have been sitting for a while and I think that came up in the documentary of people getting to the scene, you know, like the, the you know, the the first responders saying that it looks like she's been dead for a while. There's there, a lot of the blood is dry on the walls here. Um, yes. So, uh, okay, uh, yes. okay. Signs of cleanup and, um, and... And that time, that time element. That time element of, of the drying uh, occurring and it not being... It could be that uh, with the impact, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was the one that hit her. Um, That's right. With the uh, the time, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that she was uh, killed or murdered because she could have, you know, fall if she did fall down the stairs and just laid there for a couple hours. Yeah. Then then that explains some of the drying. Yeah, he 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 didn't say I saw her fall down the stairs and tried to you know you know save right. her or whatever you know he but he did say she's still breathing. That's the thing. So she he said she's still breathing, which there just doesn't seem any way that that's possible. 
and the cleanup. It isn't. And yeah. and the cleanup. Yeah. And then the I was going to say the third the third thing. Where where with the cleanup being, you know, if you just found her, why would you start cleaning stuff up? Oh, uh, the the shorts. And the There's shorts. The cleanup of the shorts and then again stains going up into the crotch area, directionality from floor upwards. That's important. Right. You know, assuming that you're standing in the shorts, they're going from floor upwards, traveling in an upwards direction into the crotch, which that is what you see when you're standing over someone and beating them. And not when you find a body and go check on them. Unless you go to administer some kind of health aid, which you're doing CPR or those kinds of right, things, right, right. then you can find uh, blood that's been um, aspirated you know, through the lungs. Right. And, or I should say expirated. It's passing out of the mouth. When you're giving CPR sometimes, we have seen instances where people's faces or their chest has been covered with blood because it's being expirated from the victim. But there was none of that or any discussion of that. Right, because... So, it, it, it was it was so bloody that doing any kind of first aid like that would get him way messier uh, than just a few spots on his shorts. Yeah, and that's just not usually an area exposed during a CPR or, or you know emergency aid. You wouldn't normally see that. Again, these are this is why, and I know Epstein and Labor did this. They put on the clothes, right? They wear the clothes, and then recreate these things to try to see how these stains get in certain places. They look at where the stains are. They document it, and so I'm I know they did that as part of their work. And again, found exactly the same thing the Deaver had that went, yeah, these stains are rather suspicious based on their position. All right. So I'm very much looking forward to that episode. And I really hope, like you said, we can get um, uh, Epstein on uh, to talk about his work in this case and and explaining some of these uh, of these things. But I do want to do uh, one more episode. So we'll end, we're going to end to, you know, tonight and then come back for one more episode. So I want to talk about um, all the things that the prosecution did wrong to raise that reasonable doubt. Oh, my uh, God. Uh, there's so, so much wrong and right with this case. Right. So, um, you know, moving that aside, we're going we're gonna to discover what a blowpoke is. Um, and, um, which is not a term I'm familiar with, but, uh, and, and the other issues that came up a lot due to the prosecution in in how they chose to move forward with the case. Uh, and then the problems and the questions that arise from what they did, what they didn't do, what they revealed and kept hidden from defense, uh, and all that. Yeah. All that post-conviction stuff. Uh, and then, and finally, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the owl, because maybe it's not a question of who killed uh, <laughs> uh, her, but Hoot killed her. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I don't know that I can beat that. That's pretty good. I will say, though, a, a good old Twin Peaks reference. Uh, if you ever were a fan of Twin Peaks, the owls are not what they seem. Oh, uh, yes. So um, uh, make sure you guys stick around for uh, one, you know, a couple more episodes again on this. One more we talk about uh, all those topics, and then a final one. Hopefully, like we said, Hopefully. with an uh, with an interview, we still got to get that n- uh, nailed down. Uh, with that, uh, Glenn, uh, you mentioned the last episode. You've got uh, class, uh, some classes coming up, and people can find 
uh, references and dates and locations at ronsmithandassociates.com. Yeah, I'm going to be putting together even some new classes too, but advanced ACB applications, we're going to try to get some of those on the books. I teach the exclusion and sufficiency class with John Black. I'm really working on trying to get this uh, testimony class put together uh, so that I am, this is this class where I'm working with a defense attorney and we're going over these kinds of answers, right. um, help people prepare for testimony and basically improve their testimony and latent print issues. And uh, for myself, you can go to rayforensics.com for that exclusionology class. Also for more information about my new class on comparisons on screen with Photoshop. Um, I've got some uh, some nifty things that I'm working on on that regard that uh, I'm, I'm anxious to show people, especially at the conference. So if you guys are going to be at the conference, uh, talk to me, ask me some questions about more information along those lines. Uh, or email me if you're not going to be there. Uh, so that's eric at rayforensics.com. Glenn's email is glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. And uh, make sure uh, to follow up with, uh, if you have any, if you want to find out some more stuff, uh, you know, go to rayforensics.com, click on the Double Loop Podcast link to, to you know, find our landing page for the podcast and uh, even more links and information about each episode. Uh, listen to us every week, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, or uh, on the rayforensics.com. Uh, you can also go on to any of those platforms, especially uh, iTunes, and give us those five-star ratings. Uh, I've started to see some more of those roll in, so thank you to those who have uh, given us uh, five stars. Uh, but that's a great way to, to spread out the word about the podcast so more people can listen as well. Uh, the views expressed on this podcast are ours and nobody else's, uh, no one we work for or represent in any other way. So with that, thank you guys, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.